So uh, today's Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 19 to chapter 4, verse 7. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. In the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent out the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Thanks, Josh. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us to see ourselves the way you see us. Please speak to us today and help me to be clear, help us uh, to follow and to deeply believe the truths that are here, knowing that uh, in them is life. Amen. Well, I want to begin today by speaking about the epidemic confronting Australia. I'm not talking about COVID. We're not in an epidemic here. I'm talking about an epidemic we are in, and that's an anxiety epidemic. In any one year, two million Australians will consult their GP about experiencing anxiety. More adolescents are taking anti-anxiety medication than ever before. And in the National Youth Mental Health Survey conducted last year, one in every three Australian young people reported high or very high levels of distress, up from 2018 levels. This is not just an issue for adolescents. Uh, increasingly, it's an issue for all of us. Um, but particularly, I think it's an issue for our young people. And being a Christian doesn't make you immune. In Psalm 42, uh, mental health is spoken of. The psalmist says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? It might surprise you that such a thing is in the Bible. However, if you've been there, it's a great relief that such a thing is in the Bible. It'd be simplistic in the extreme to point to just one cause for our anxiety epidemic as a nation. 
But a key cause for the chronic anxiety faced today, uh, which many people recognise, is the issue of identity. If you ask doctors, if you ask police, if you ask um, school teachers, what's going on in the soul of Australia today, what's often said is that people have very little sense of self-worth. And in, tied up with that is the whole issue of who am I? Um, that is the perennial question facing Australians today. Well, it's our issue too. Now, if you're in home group this week and you've already looked at this passage, you would have done this exercise, but I'm just going to ask everyone to do it again, even if you've done it before. Close your eyes, and in your head, I want you to complete just a couple of sentences. So, um, could you try and finish this sentence? I feel I have most worth as a person when... What? Just finish that sentence. I feel I have most worth as a person when, what? Okay, now, let's go on to a different one. When I think about what God thinks of me, complete this sentence, I think God sees me as a what? Just put in a couple of words there. God sees me as... And lastly, when you think about yourself, try and finish this sentence, when I think about myself, I see myself as a what? I'm not asking for what you know you should say, I'm saying be honest, what do you see yourself as? Okay? Now just... Um, Park those for the moment, we'll come back to them, but it will touch on your issue of identity, okay? Now, I did this exercise with our, two of our men's groups this week, I'm not gonna spill the beans, <laughs> but so often for guys, you know, how we feel about ourselves is tied to our performance. When we're kicking goals at work or at home, when we're helpful to other people, that's when we feel good, that's when our sense of self-worth as a person is high. But I don't think it's just guys. Um, it may not be work goals, but for all of us, especially for youth, um, it can be how we look. Um, it can be our marks. They're a great performance indicator, aren't they? <laughs> that we're pressured to keep performing it. It can be how well we look or perform on the sporting field. Or perhaps it is you know, we peg our worth as a person to, uh, if we're older, perhaps whether our family are doing well, whether we're married, whether we're in a relationship, how our husband or wife is going, how our kids are going. Or is it the kudos we get in our job? Or whether, just simply whether people like to hang out with us or not. Okay, so today we're in Galatians 3 and we're asking the question, why did God place people under the Old Testament law? Now that's connected with what we've just done. You'll, you'll see in a moment. But 
Paul's asking, why did God place people under the law? Now, I don't see many Christians today saying to themselves, I really want to place myself under Old Testament law. I really think that's something I should do. However, what I do see people doing today is placing themselves under other laws of their own construction. I am worthy as a person if, I am worthy as a person if I achieve, if I'm attractive, if people like me, if I can contribute. Now, of course, we're made to contribute, we're made to achieve, we're made for relationship, people are beautiful, um, but what happens when that falls apart, okay? What if once we were these things, but it's not true anymore? Or what if it's true today, but what about tomorrow? I'm told there's nothing, um, there's no one who's, who beats themselves up more than a silver Olympic medalist who says, they're second best in the world, but if only I just pushed myself just a little bit harder. And there's no one more insecure than a gold Olympic medalist. Because <laughs> even though they're at the top for that day, behind them they've got a world of athletes who are scrambling for their position. So we base our identity, our status, our self-worth on our performance. What does that mean about who we are? our status as a person, our value as a person. Well, of course, this is a current problem and it's an ancient problem. The Galatian Christians, eager to prove themselves of worth before God, let go of the gospel of grace, that's too good to be true, and are instead relying on their own obedience to the Jewish law to kind of peg their status in their relationship before God. And you can bet that behind their outward bravado, whatever hoops they've jumped through, there are core issues of identity going on, of them not knowing who they were, and anxiety because they questioned their status and their worth as people. And there was lots of judging going on in the eyes of one another because they thought this impacted what God thought about them. So how Paul addresses this issue in Galatia suddenly becomes very, very relevant to us. Why the law? You answer that question, we can unravel our issues. That's the question that Paul kicks off our passage with. If you've just jumped in to our church today, we've been working our way through Galatians and Paul kicks off by asking, why was the law given to us at all? It's clunky because it picks up halfway through an argument Last week, just to recap, Paul got to the guts of the gospel. Sinners can only be justified or declared right in God's sight by God's grace alone and through faith alone in Jesus alone. And in the course of setting out that argument, he contrasts two things. God's prior promise of the gospel made first to Abraham and then God's giving of the Old Testament law, which the Galatians were getting hung up on. He says, when you contrast promise, promise and law, the promise comes first and it still stands. The coming of the law doesn't do away with that gospel promise. And that raises then the whole question of well, why the law at all? 
And that's what he now answers. And the answer in verse nine is, God gave the law to expose our problem and also our need. He said, the law was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promised referred to had come. It was only temporary. The law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments and the 603 other laws that came after that, were only temporary until Jesus came. And they were never ever meant to save people. Well, why were they given? Paul says they were added because of transgressions. That is, the law shows up our problem and our need. It shows us up as sinners and shows us up as people who therefore have a need. We are unable to save ourselves. First of all, it exposes the problem that we're sinners. In Romans 7, Paul expands on this. He takes the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And he says, I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. Because I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But then, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. Now, I live well, I don't need things, but how many times a week do I find myself clicking on Facebook Marketplace and flicking through in case I miss out on a really good deal? Sally's nodding, right? You know? Uh, flames, coveting, take speeding, right? Think of the freeway, oh, the freeway. Okay, so frustrating, the new speed limit's going down. When I come into a 60 or a 40 zone, what do I find myself thinking straight away? How fast can I just edge up over that without getting pinged, right? So instinctively, I'm going 42, 43, 44, that's 10%. Could I go to 45? Now, why do I do that? I'm not thinking about other people. I'm not thinking about the workers who are fixing up the road who I might be driving past and freaking out. That's why the limit goes down, all right? I'm thinking of myself. The law exposes sin. But more than that, it goes further. What, what oxygen is to fire, the law is to sin. It inflames sin. In Romans 7, Paul says, apart from the law, sin was dead. I didn't really know about it. But once I was alive apart from the law, because I thought it was okay, but when the, the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I'm convicted lawbreaker. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Because sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. The problem is not the law. The law is good. The problem is that when you combine the law with the sinful nature, this is a noxious and deadly combination. The Old Testament law, therefore, was given to show us a problem, our inherent sinful selves and also our need. G'day. We can't save ourselves by, be, by trying harder because the law inflames our sin and we're trapped. Now, this is very different to the promise. He says, Paul says, the law, <laughs> stay with me, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. And we all go, oh, that was really clear. Not Okay, verse 19 and 20 have 
have been declared the most obscure verses that Paul ever wrote. I looked up different commentaries. There are 430 possible interpretations of the, of the end of verse 19. Excellent. Okay, now for what it's worth, here is my best shot. Paul's contrasting the gospel promise made to Abraham and the law given to Moses. The way they were given was different. The promise came direct from God to Abraham, no middleman. The law was given through angels to Moses and only then to Israel. If you've got a question about the angels, the verses are in the outline, you can check them later. In the way the law was given, that, that is, it, the law was mediated, the promise not so. So if you simply compare the way the law and the promise were given shows that the promise is primary in God's plans, it wasn't mediated. Except now that he's mentioned mediator, the very mention of a mediator may make us think, well, a mediator's job is to negotiate a solution between two parties because a mediator implies more than one party, right? So maybe we're thinking that Moses or the angel kind of wrangled a deal in the law that would work to give life. And then Paul says, not so fast. God is one, which we don't get. But if you're a Jewish, you would, because every day you say the Jewish Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So my guess is what Paul's saying is, if you think that Moses' job as a mediator of the law was to negotiate a deal which would impart life, not so fast, Moses was only a delivery boy, that's all he was. <laughs> he didn't arbitrate an arrangement to give life, no, 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 God set the terms in the giving of the law, and guess what? In the law, God requires everything. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. God is one. So, he's saying, the promise is primary, and God's law requires heart, mind, soul, obedience. No one can give that. The law was never given to impart life. It's not its purpose. Now, if you didn't follow all that, don't worry. The main point is at the start of verse 19, uh, which, by the way, is in your first paragraph there, okay, in your leaflet. The reason the law was given to us was to expose the problem of our sin and need for a saviour. It was only ever meant to be temporary until Christ came. And then he says the function of the law was to be our guardian. And there's two senses of this. The first is... Prison guard language, verse 22. Scripture, the law, had locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. It's like Paul's describing, can you imagine, the collective existence of all the people of God from the Old Testament right through to now as one lifetime. Imagine this, all right? One person's lifetime. He's saying in the period of our life from Moses through to Jesus being born, the law was our prison guard. So we're there in the cell, convicted lawbreakers. We were sinners before, but through the law being given, it's shown us up as lawbreakers and it's condemned us. We're thrown into prison. 
And now the law is standing there at the door of the prison cell, not letting us out. Because every time we, we say, oh, okay, I'm gonna get out, I'll be good, the law blows oxygen onto the flame of our sin and and suddenly we find ourselves condemned again. The law is our prison guard, we can't get out. And then the, the law is our guardian, our guard in another sense, not a prison guard who doesn't let us out, but, but our guardian like a schoolmaster, responsible to whip us into shape and to get us ready for the time we graduate. The, the word is paedagogos or guardian, verse 24 it's translated as, meaning a schoolmaster. Until Christ came that we may be justified by faith, but now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a paedagogos, a, sc a schoolmaster. So um, Paul's saying the law is not there to crack the whip and punish us when we fail anymore. It's so important to see where we are in salvation history. This is why he, he, he stretches out the combined existence of all the people of God from ages past right till now as one lifetime. He says where you are in your lifetime, that's really important. Okay, suddenly you see that if you're living after Jesus has come, this has changed everything. Okay, what it means is that the weight of the law has been lifted and not only that, who we are has changed because how we gain our worth, our status has become clear. It's, it's not through the law, but through Christ, meaning verse 26 to 29, we are now sons, not slaves. Verse 26, he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So this is paragraph four, right? Now, our Bible translates this as children of God. But the Greek word is sons, and I'm gonna ask us to hang on to that because there's a meaning inherent in the word sons which is not there in the word children. Back in the New Testament times, I've said this before, daughters could not inherit under Roman law. Only sons could. We say that's sexist, yeah, okay, understood, but get over it and now work out what Paul's saying by the meaning of sons. He's saying, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, meaning you are all heirs, you inherit. Because verse 27, all of you who were baptized into Christ, which happened when you believed, have now clothed yourselves with Christ. Now this is the language of Christ being inside and outside. You're baptized into him, saturated, literally immersed into Christ, and you've been clothed on the outside with him, so that verse 29, he defines you now, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and your heirs according to the promise. You know, there's times in our lives when our status, where we are in the pecking order, becomes very clear. At primary school, it was, okay, here's, here's a game with two team captains, you get to pick the team and you know, you're last to be picked on the, t it's very clear to everyone where you are in the pecking order, right? Uh. <laughs> okay, another, another thing is when you, you um, board a plane. Uh, Narelle's flying back from Sydney today, that's why she's not here. But when you, you enter a plane for boarding, it's very clear where you are. I've never ever traveled first class 
But notice that you don't enter from the back normally, you enter from the front, you pass through the first class section with their expansive seats and the people there looking so relaxed and so pleased with themselves, sipping champagne with their pre-flight you know, drink and they look at all the plebs walking down and go, well, I'm here, you're there. <laughs> all right, and then you move through to what's, I don't know what's between first class and economy, but there's something else where there's more legroom and you think, they don't have champagne, but I'd like to be there, you know? No, no, no. And then you go back and you check your, you know, and then you're in economy and normally for a long haul flight, the seat I get is right at the back in front of the toilet. And that's like the worst seat, the back straight up and there's smell and it's bad and there's no sleep and it's long, right? This is, it's very clear where you are. Okay, Paul is saying, guess what guys? When you belong to Jesus Christ, there's no economy class. Everyone is first class. Back in 2013, I was part of a team from Trinity that went to India. Uh, we spent two weeks there, one week in a particular location in a, a large compound teaching pastors. But what we gained was astounding. Um, the organizational India Gospel League, what they'd done was they'd, they'd set up basically a training place for hundreds and hundreds of lower class people. Here's Ian Bartlett now with the Lord, but uh, he's doing high fives and handing out fruit tingles to kids there. <laughs> These were kids who were often dropped off at this place as orphans. No one wanted them, and they took them in, and they clothed them, and they had child sponsorship, and then they educated them, um, giving high fives there. Kind of, there's Andrew Severin up there with his blue hat on. Um, and uh, when, when the kids grew up, and they, they didn't just educate them, they, they gave them a livelihood as well. So the women um, were taught how to be nurses or given skills in um, office admin. Um, uh, there's Amy Seymour Walsh, I think she used to be here. Uh, she's there with some of the women learning how to be nurses. Uh, the guys would, would be taught how to make, a, how to make bricks or, or, or a metal work or you know, how to work on a coffee plantation. They were given a livelihood. And on this compound as well, they had a hospital where the nurses were trained, but it was the only palliative care and oncology unit in the city. Because in a Hindu caste, you know, if you get old and you get cancer, well, that's because you deserve it, right? So we wouldn't want to look after you when you're getting what you deserve. But the Christians were different. They cared for people. They loved them. And they taught the kids the Bible. Every day, the kids heard of Jesus. Um, the kids put on a show for us. One child, it was about this boy, big little boy, he recited this whole long psalm for us while, while we were there. It's amazing, they'd done all this memory work. Four little girls, beautiful girls dressed up. They came and did a dance. They'd choreographed and worked out. It was about getting ready for the bridegroom Jesus to return. It was so beautiful, this wonderful, wonderful thing. I said to our, the guy who was translating, I said, what's the conversion rate of these hundreds and hundreds of people who are living there? He said, 100%. I went, how could that be? He said, well, you have gotta understand, Christians are the lowest caste here. Many of them are unwanted orphans just dumped here. 
out there, the job that they have for life is to clean the sewers. That's it. No one loves them, no one else cares, but here, we care, and guess what? In Christ, God declares them not lowest caste, but the highest ones. They are the ones who will inherit the world. They are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. No wonder there's a conversion rate of 100%. As if to reinforce the point, next week I saw this sign, I took a photo. Okay, do you see what a difference Jesus Christ makes? Now that he has come, Paul is saying we are not under that performance-orientated law anymore, which pegs our self-worth and identity to what we do. Paul says those previous pegs by which we determine our worth are now out the window. Verse 28, he says, there is now neither Jew or Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is now neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? The Galatians had been thinking, we have different status symbols by which we can peg people about their worth. Being a Jew under law, that puts you higher in God's estimation than being a Gentile. He says, no, it doesn't count. Neither Jew nor Greek. Um, back then, being a slave was to be terrible in the Roman world. That puts you, in the eyes of everyone, on lower status versus a free person. He says, no, there's neither slave nor free. Back then, being a male gave you more worth than a person. And I know a lot of girls today can feel that, right? He says, no, all one in Christ Jesus. Whatever worldly categories we impose to peg one person higher than another in status or as worth as a person, they're abolished with the coming of Christ because everyone in Christ Jesus is first class. That is what freedom from the law means. In chapter four, he goes back to this idea of the law as a schoolmaster. This is the last two paragraphs in your leaflet. And he explains, he says, basically back then, if you were the master of an estate and you had kids, you would place them under the tutelage of one of your slaves who was um, their schoolmaster. And that person's job was to raise them until they came of age. Now, whilst they're kids, they really have the status as slaves. You know, the slave could give them a good whack when they disobeyed, you know, whack if you didn't perform, whack if you went up to grade, and their job was to get them ready. But when they came of age, they are not treated like the slave anymore. They are the heir of the estate. Paul says, think about that and realize if you're in Christ Jesus, you're not under the law, not under your pedagogos, not under the schoolmaster. You are of age. Paul says, when Christ, before Christ came, we were under the law, but when time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those from under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And then he says, because you're his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, 
Abba, Father. So it's real, you see. So he says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are his son, God has also made you an heir. Last week we heard about the miracle of justification, God declaring through Christ a sinner right before him. If God had stopped there, that would have been enough. But this is an added miracle because with justification now comes adoption into God's family. Adoption to receiving the full right as sons. Now if that is true, which it is, this speaks to us. Uh, It speaks to our issues of self-loathing, of anxiety, of never feeling good enough because we peg our self-worth to laws which we put ourselves under but which Jesus has redeemed us from. What does it mean? It means we need to let go of the law, we need to embrace sonship. Why do we feel self-loathing when we don't achieve the impossibly high standards that we put ourselves under? Why should that be true? I mean, what law have we constructed which pegs our worth as a person to our achievement. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the Jewish law and whatever other law we might put ourselves under. What about if you find yourself alone, without family, without friends? Um, Why is it that it's so easy to play this game, we we sit in church and we think and we feel that we are so alone and everyone else in church has it all together and we're the one who's dysfunctional, who just doesn't get it. What if you're divorced? Um, What if you're alone and single and you've never been married? What if you're here as a new person and you feel like a fish out of water, like a shag on the rock? We need to believe what God says. If you're in Christ Jesus and belong to him, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We need to embrace sonship. How do you do it? A couple of ideas. First of all, We need to have the highest level of respect when we speak to one another, higher than anywhere else in society. This is, we should be setting the standard here. Because we are all one in Christ Jesus, fellow heirs. Um, I'm not a perfect dad, Sally can testify to this. Um, However, when the kids were little and, you know, my job was to correct them and, you know, be their paedagogos, as it were, how I related to them was helped by this truth. I realized for a season, I'm the dad. But for eternity, they are my sisters in Christ. I take it in heaven, I won't be dad anymore. We'll be brother and sister in Christ. Now that affected the way in which I parent. So whilst it was appropriate at some times to exercise discipline, Um, it was always with respect. And if I overstepped the mark, which sometimes I did, 
and reacted because I've got the power, because I'm the bigger person, then I needed to repent of that and actually ask for forgiveness. And similarly, as a pastor, so being a pastor does not mean that I'm on a rung ahead of anyone else. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And that means that the way in which I need to relate to you is one of profound respect. And if I don't, either consciously or unconsciously, that means I need to repent and ask for forgiveness. We must treat people with respect, one another with respect. Second, we need to treat ourselves with respect. Uh, that is, we need to take on board how God sees us and own it for ourselves. At the start, I asked, when do you feel most worth as a person? Now, typically, it's when we feel valued, we tie that to what we do. God doesn't do that. He calls us his precious children, his sons, his sons and daughters. I mean, daughters are sons in that respect. He, he gives us his spirit to come to him and to call him father. It's real. And he sees us like this, and that's the key. You know, was there a gap between the words you used to think of yourself and the words you used to say how God thought of you? Was there a gap there? And if you thought of how God thought of yourself, were those words as miserable sinner or someone I begrudgingly put up with or no one special? That is the language of the law. The language of promise is my precious son, my precious daughter who's got everything as good as a son. You know, like. So much of our anxiety as Christians is tied to how we think God sees us. We're anxious because we feel that we don't make the grade and other people do. You know, this is just the point, we, we don't make the grade. But that way of thinking doesn't matter anymore. So how do we change it? I love what Rachel said about um, prayer. You know, praying is where God does his real work in us. Well, here's my tip as a pastor, my last tip. Every day when you get up, spend a minute in prayer thanking God that you are his precious son or daughter, not because of anything you do, not because of anything you've done, but entirely because of Christ. And thank God that you are now not under law, you are under grace. And then ask your father to increasingly make it real, to speak to your heart by his spirit, that more and more, deep down, you would believe the truth, that in Christ Jesus you are his precious, and you are his loved child. Father, may it be true. Please help us to see ourselves and one another the way that you do. And please, may your, whole spirit, your, your Holy Spirit, that, that wonderful gift of you to us, may he who helps us call you Father, may he help us believe the truth of the wonderful gospel that if we're in Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are heirs. May this be true. Amen.
Financially, we're so grateful to everyone who gives sacrificially to support the ministry here. Thank you. If you'd like to contribute, um, you can look at the details on the slide um, or visit our website and under the Sunday Hub, there's also details there. We're going to have our last song, which is a cracker, and it just makes you, um, we'll bring home all of the things we've just learned in that sermon. Who do you say I am, God? Um, I'm a child of God. Stand up and sing. Let's play. 
Next week, we're going to be going on in Galatians 4 and looking at the fact that we're no longer slaves. Um, But for now, let's send each other out with these words together. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.